If you wouldn't mind turning uh, in your Bibles, and I know there's some Bibles over on the table if you don't have one, but uh, I'd like to continue with um, where uh, you guys have been going in going through the Torah and uh, the different books uh, of the Bible that you've been through so far. You know, um, Eric and I are pretty good friends, and um, you know, typically when you ask a friend to do something, um, you know you think that you're going to do, you would want to, you know, extend something really exciting, something that's like, um, you know, this would be really helpful. And so um, when Eric contacted me and asked if I wouldn't mind speaking, because uh, you guys are going through the Torah, I was like, sure, yeah, Genesis, you know, you got the beginning of everything, and um, it's just unbelievable. You've got the story of Noah in there, you've got Abraham in there, um, this is, you got Joseph. Oh man, I could talk forever on Joseph. Oh, but then you move into Exodus. I mean, that's like made for TV drama, right? You got the whole thing happening with uh, the children of Israel going out of slavery and Pharaoh and the walking across on dry land. And then you got the law. Well, you know, he's not going to give me the law Leviticus. And then you start thinking these other things. He says, I want you to speak on Leviticus. And so, um, as a normal response, I think to myself, wow, Leviticus, the law, okay. Well, um, at the same time, uh, a friend of ours, a mutual friend of Eric and I's, asked uh, what, what I was speaking on today, and I said, well, he asked me to speak on the book of Leviticus. I said, oh. <laughs> so you're covering the whole book this Sunday. And I said, well, I'm going to try to. And um, he said, well, one of two things, either Eric really trusts you, or Eric really doesn't like you. So, uh, I, I think it's the first one, and uh, hopefully that's uh, what it ends up being. But if you wouldn't mind looking at uh, Exodus uh, chapter 40, and we're going to read verse 34, and we're going to read into Leviticus. Remember, the Torah is one narrative that is God with his people, and it's the story of God, it's the story of his people and so this is all together. Sometimes we look at the book of Leviticus and we think of a lawyer today in a courtroom who is arguing the law and he pulls out a big thick book. Um, and recently I was in a courtroom, um, not, not for myself, but um, for, for a, a, a loved one that was actually in court, unfortunately. And the judge kept pulling out these big law books. And he was looking through the law books and he was seeing where in the law um, dealt with this and if the the punishment fit um, what the crime was, because it was a sentencing. And so he was looking to see what would be appropriate within the law. What the law says has to happen at a minimum, maximum, and the judge makes the decision. That is not what the book of Leviticus is, okay? So although that's what we think of when we think of the law, I want us to try the best we can today to travel back 4,000 years ago. And I want us to think about being in the ancient world, all right? And I want us to think about the fact that before God had given the Ten Commandments and all of these different um, laws, these, these rites, these sacrifices, all these different interactions that he desired of his people, the ancient world was surrounded by people, by gods that they were afraid of. They were fickle. They didn't, I mean, they always wanted to do everything they could to not make them mad. You know, because uh, one of the gods that would be a contemporary at this time 
would acknowledge the worldwide flood. But they would say that their God did the flood and that the reason that he did the flood is because humans were just being too loud. They were bothering him. Okay, So people walked on eggshells terrified of gods. Okay, Those gods obviously aren't real. It's obviously evil, dark, um, plans of Satan and man's just sinful nature to create things. But that's what the Israelites were familiar with was this feeling of being very scared of gods, being very terrified of them. So it wasn't uncommon for when we get to the part of the sacrifice and stuff like that. I know we get a little like grossed out by all the blood. Uh, that seems pretty barbaric and we don't understand it. But if we travel back 4,000 years ago, that was normal life for people in the ancient world. And false gods, some false gods, people would actually go to the highest mountain that would be their god's mountain. And whether they threw their child off the mountain or whether they threw their child into a fire, it was an offering to try to appease the god so the god would not be upset with them. Okay, So it's in this backdrop that God is continuing to talk to Moses and he's giving them what Yahweh the Lord, their God, what he requires of them. And so sometimes things to us that 4,000 years removed seem barbaric and strange and odd and weird. I want us to do the best we can to try to be open-minded to think about that. And I would like you to do our friends from 4,000 years ago a favor. If they were to look over here today and they would see this on my wrist and I would say, hey Siri, what's the weather like tomorrow? And I'm kind of waiting, looking at it. It's just saying one moment, and it's probably going to say it's not going to work in here. But anyways, it says, you know, tomorrow it'll be 80 and fair or humid or whatever. People over here would be like, what? Because they would hear something talking on my hand, and they would see me talking to this. So they would, they were not a, there you go. (laughs) You know? So there it is. So you got the, so they're like, he's a prophet. He's a god. Like, this is crazy because they didn't see the evolution of what we know today to be cell phones and cellular watches. They don't have that information. So if they were to look ahead, there would be things that are so confusing, just like for us when uh, we look back, things can be confusing. So I just want us to be, to try to take that into perspective as we look at some of these things. But I also, what I My prayer for you all and what God blessed me with is Leviticus is actually a book of God's grace. It is a wonderful, wonderful showing of God's heart and what God values. So Exodus 40 in verse 34, it says, The clouds covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. Then the Lord... Okay, so we got to remember, this is all together. This is one thing that's happened. So you go from Exodus right to verse 1. They're not like starting Leviticus. is like something completely different. So they go from that journey to Leviticus 1. Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. 
Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you bring an offering to the Lord from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or flock. And then he will go on and continue to, to give specific instructions about that offering. Okay, so the reason that I start there, although that may seem kind of odd to you, is I want to plant in your mind that the Torah is one. Those five books are one narrative um, that God is giving to his people, and they are all, they're all things together. So in Exodus, there's the Ten Commandments, right? You have the, the parts, like other parts of the law that are starting. In Leviticus, it's, it's baked full of, of law, all right? But they're all together. And they all describe something for, uh, for a purpose. Now, when some of you think of the law, you think of verses like this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Um, okay, I'm not sure how that's going to help me today, God, but all right, thanks for that law. Or what about this one? You're not eating anything with blood in it. You are not to practice uh, divination or witchcraft. You are not to cut off the hair at the sides of your head or mar the edge of your beard. You're not to make gashes on your body for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, come on. This is that anti-Harry Potter speech that's coming or why tattoos are horrible. Um, you know, and, and we'll just, we'll finish it up with this one. You are to keep my statues. Do not crossbreed two different kinds of your livestock. Sow your fields with two kinds of seed or put a garment made of two kinds of material. Now, I know for a fact that I know nothing about clothes, but I know that just like this mic I'm struggling with, I struggle with clothes too because of my body. And um, so when my wife goes shopping with me, I have to go with her because otherwise she's going to return everything because nothing was made, to f no canvas was made to fit a body like this, Okay. It's an awkward size. But I know, I remember from when we were looking at that this shirt I have on has different materials that make up this one shirt. So today I am in violation of the law. And so what do we do with that? How does that affect us today? And uh, as we look at that, I hope at the end of it that it, it, is, it is clearer to you. Because I want to talk about Yahweh's heart, the heart of the Lord. And as we look at the big idea this morning, we're going to see that through the law and sacrifice, God extended his grace to the Israelites, making it so that they could live in his holy presence. And he gave them the atonement to keep them in his presence. The late theologian Eric Zinger said about the book of Leviticus, which is probably, I think, the most succinct statement, the book of Leviticus is a reader on the grace and the consequence of God's closeness. I'll read that again. The book of Leviticus is a reader on the grace and the consequence of God's closeness. So as we think about that stepping back in time 400 years ago, and we think about God's chosen people, and how God has continued to be patient with them. Eric talked to you about how Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock and God's grace or God's glory passed by him, the goodness of God. And we know that um, he is slow to anger. 
slow to wrath. Once again, think about these gods that they're used to, that they're doing everything they can to try to make them happy because they're waiting to get punched in the face. God is different. God is loving. He is kind. He is gracious. But he is righteous and just as well. So how is this going to happen? How is a holy God going to dwell with an unholy people? How is God, who was so offended by Adam's sin that death passed to all men and they were kicked out of the garden, how is this same God who was offended at Pharaoh's continual sin and thinking that he was God and he destroyed him, how is this same God going to be able to reside together with his presence, with his people, given that mankind has this glowing, huge problem. You know, like when you're a teenager or you're maybe in your early 20s and you have a big date and you're nervous and you're all excited, but you also want to throw up and you hope you don't blow it and you're all sweaty and you go and look in the mirror and there's this huge zit right in the middle of your forehead. And there is no way, there is just no way to hide that. That's the problem here. Sin is this huge defect that separates God from mankind. So how is God going to dwell with his people? And how is he going to extend and show his grace in this way? Let's look at Exodus um, chapter 20 and verse 18. Um, You can turn there. I'm going to go ahead and read it. I want to just remind you of what's happened at this point when God, an example of this. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the ram's horn and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Okay, so there is a mutual problem here. The people are terrified of God. It's been intrinsic in everything that they've known their whole life and everything around them, no matter what culture it is, whether it's a false God or true God, they're terrified of God. And then to hear God speak, to, to see these acts of God, they, they know that God could just kill them instantly. And they're terrified, but they trust Moses. And Moses is the one that's kind of been this weirdo that showed up, that took him out, that hangs around, that petitions for them, and he just kind of keeps putting up with them. So like, you go ahead, Moses. Like, you go talk to him because we're going to die. They're terrified of it. So God is working this out, and that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. The first thing that we see that God gives them is, uh, as as it began in Leviticus, is this offering to allow Aaron and uh, the other priests to have kind of like this orientation, this, this sacrifice and these rites that they would go through to be able to be the priest that would be able to go into the tabernacle where God's presence was, and they would be able to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Because remember, Moses was not allowed to go in there. All right? So God had to first sanctify these priests, and that required a blood sacrifice. So right away, this is starting... Um, God is establishing this is how that he is going to deal with the zit, this awkwardness, this sin, is he is going to cover the sin, and he is going to designate certain people to be representatives of the people to bring their sacrifices and to cover their sins. Okay? Man, I hope this might last. Um, And so um, the sacrifices 
that um, instead of looking at each one of them, I think it's better for the time that we have today to just kind of understand when someone would be asked to sacrifice the best of a lamb. Okay, let's, let's, or goat, whatever. Let's, let's use that for an example. In this time, these people were, they depended on agriculture. It was their entire way of making a living. And so if you were to give of the best of your flock, this is beyond show quality. This isn't just that the breed is perfect, that it's like that's how you would define it's got the right ears, the wool looks correct on it, like all of those different things. It, they're also depending on it. That's going to be the one that's the main producer that they can depend on for maybe it's milk. Or maybe they're going to depend on it for the wool um, to be able to provide clothing. This wasn't just like, I'm going to give you one of thousands and thousands of, um, of my stock. It was actually like, this is the very best that I have, and I'm going to sacrifice it to be sacrificed. Okay? So today when we were singing, people's hands were raised. Like I was moved a couple times to think about the truth of the songs and like how grateful I am. And so I'm singing a song. Okay? This is more this is going beyond. I can't give God a song to appease him for the sin that keeps me separated for who he is and the fact that he is dwelling in our presence. I can't just praise him and thank him for that. Like, I need to do something more. So I'm going to sacrifice. It's going to cost me a lot, but I'm going to give this to God because I want it to cover my sin and I want him to know how much he loves me and cares for me. It would be like today if you had a small business and in that small business, there was a, um, uh, an employee that you had that you're like, that's my guy. All right, or that lady is going to be the person that's going to carry on this business long after I'm gone. And uh, I don't know if this is going to make it, Eric. <laughs> if you want to switch by someone, but um, so they, uh, they, uh, you look at this employee and you think, well, if I could keep this employee, this business I know is going to be in good hands. They have integrity. They're hardworking. Um, the company does well because of them. And it would be like taking that employee. And handing them over to God and say, they're your employee, they no longer work here, I no longer have access to them. Even though it's going to cost me, that's how important it is. So when we think about these sacrifices, I really want us to think back 4,000 years ago to the ancient world for what was their way of expressing this huge gap that they had because of their, skin, their sin and what they, um, because of their sin and because of their gratitude and wanting to please God and obey what God asked them to do, they were giving of their best so that the animals could be sacrificed. Now the animal is being sacrificed by the priest. Its blood has to be shed. Okay? So the, in Leviticus, it says that blood, life is in the blood. And so God required a blood sacrifice for sin. All right, and that was to cover, I, I want to be, make sure you understand the difference. That was to cover their sin. That was the system that God put up so that God's presence could be in the same place that they were because their sin was covered. Not taken away, their sin was covered. Okay? So those are the sacrifices. Then we also have the law. Okay? Now in the law... There are all of these very peculiar 
rules that to us don't make a lot of sense. I can talk about whether a hair on your face is yellow or if it's white, and about whether the leprosy growing on your wall is red or whatever else. So today we would call that an infection or mold or whatever else. But these laws made the children of Israel very different, okay? 4,000 years ago, make them very different from their counterparts. One, God's law actually has a lot of hygiene in it, like bathe yourself, wait until the evening to be around other people, okay? But it's not just the practical needs. It made them different. It made them peculiar. It made them distinct from the other nations around them that they had all of these laws and rituals that were about cleanliness, that were about being for pro-life, being preciousness of a baby, not a God that wants you to throw your baby into a fire so that you make me happy so that you get a good harvest next year, but a God who says, dedicate your child to me and love them so that they may be identified with me and be one of my people and know the truths of who Yahweh the Lord is counterparts that were terrified of a God waiting for kill them to a God, Yahweh, who wants so much to dwell in their presence. And even though he is the only true God and powerful, he is willing to find a way to cover their sin so that he can be with them and they can be a nation that are a kingdom of priests, that all of the Israelites are a reflection of Yahweh. Okay? So all of these things are set up so that it makes them different and it makes them similar to God. So the nation of Israel um, is in this two things that they've got going on. They have these laws, these rituals, ways to be pure, sacrifices for when they sin or sacrifices of thanksgiving, all of these different parts of Leviticus that tell us about their relationship with God. One of the things that I want to say about the laws real quick, and then I'm going to focus the rest of the time on atonement. But when we look at laws, it has been said that laws are the window into the heart of God. Therefore, the law gives a window into the heart and value of the lawgiver. So when I read the law, when you read the law, when we look at the Torah and we look at parts of Exodus and Leviticus, I would encourage you, instead of looking at the oddity or the law of maybe how it doesn't fit today, or to see it as something that's weighing, it's heavy, thankful that we're freed of it, so it's a bad thing. Instead, I would like to, for you to look at it as, what is behind God's heart with why that law was made? What is the value of the law. In this country, one of the big things that um, was at the beginning of it was that there was taxation without what? Representation. So people really get in a feud over tax laws, right? But the heart, the value of why there's representatives here is because that was important to the people who put the laws together. So I would like for us to look 
um, at a couple different laws real quick and then um, spend the rest of our time looking at atonement. If you would look at Leviticus 19 and verse 26, this is an exercise that I would really encourage you to do throughout this week and, and ask God to give you an open mind to look at the window, to peek in his window, to look at what his heart values in some of these laws. And if you look with me um, at verse 26, Leviticus 19, verse 26. You are not to eat anything with blood in it. You're not to practice divination or witchcraft. You are not to cut off the hair at the sides of your head or mar the edge of your beard. You are not to make gashes on your body for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Okay? At first glance, and I have said in I don't know how many sermons, where because I grew up in a very strict environment where that meant that you're not supposed to have tattoos. Okay? So, once again, let's go back 4,000 years ago. All right? Let's put ourselves in the chair of the ancient world. What some people did is they used witchcraft or were able to get in connection with seers to be able to speak to the dead to help them understand things better. And one of those practices was to cut yourselves or get a tattoo that had a symbolization of making a tie-in that you're channeling, you're, you're putting faith in this speaking with the dead or some sort of witchcraft. Okay? So as we know that that's the context in which this was written, let's look in the window at God's heart, the lawgiver. What does God value in that law? Well, we don't need to seek the dead for help. We don't need to look to Satan to be the source of our information of what we need to know. We have God Almighty who created everything and who is controlling of everything. He is sovereign, all right? And as believers, his Holy Spirit resides within us. So today, as we look at this verse, it has in my opinion, absolutely nothing to do with you getting a tattoo unless your reason for getting a tattoo is you're trying to channel the dead and find information and hope in there and rejecting the hope and the information that God and his word gives you. Does that make sense? So sometimes it's, it's easy to kind of say this isn't important or true, but man, how important true is it? We can see things about God of what he values when we think about we look at what's the value of the law. So the last one, uh, if you turn back to verse 9 in chapter 19, um, we're going to do the ag agricultural one because it just seems like that's what we should do. All right? When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. And another word for resident alien there, 
Uh, it's not talking about ET. It'd be like a foreigner, okay? So leave them for the poor or the foreigner. So I'm sure a lot of you don't have vineyards. Some of you probably have fields, but not everybody does. If we look into the window, okay, of God's heart, who wrote this law for the people to value, what do you think God values? And I would ask you to feel free to shout things out. What does it look like God values from what you see here? Say that again. Generosity. What else does God value? Others. Others. People. God is providing for everyone. Not just his people. The poor. The ones that don't have any that most people in society turn their nose at. The foreigner. Okay? So I'll try to be not getting too much trouble here today. But let's fast forward 4,000 years. Would people say that followers of Christ value generosity, providing for the poor, and providing for the foreigners? Because the same lawgiver shows us in this law what his heart values. He gives us a front row seat to what he values. To be distinct and different from counterparts is that instead of maximizing my field to make everything out of it I can for me, I am going to trust the God who actually gave me the field to be able to extend that blessing onto someone else and be content with enough that God has given and trust him to be the sufficiency of all I need. It's a little bit like Philippians 4. Okay? So my encouragement to you, instead of getting hung up on that the law is this horrible, scary thing, and I'll admit there's some things that are odd today <laughs> as you're trying to read through it, I would ask you to try to do this exercise of find two or three of these laws and look into the heart of the lawgiver and say, what does this tell me that God values? And apply that to your life and see if you don't start seeing things like, man, as I'm reading this, this sounds a lot like the book of James, who was also Jesus' brother. But that's a whole other thing. All right. So it says of things that are important to God that should be important to us today that were important to the children of Israel. So as we fast forward, and we're going to kind of spend the rest of our time right here on atonement. This is one of the sacrifices. You will find this. We're not going to, we're not going to turn there. But if you would you know, look at Leviticus 16 and 17, that would be the area that's going to talk about the Day of Atonement. This was a ritual that would happen once a year. And on that day, the high priest would take an offering into the Holy of Holies. Now remember, this is where God's presence dwells. And they were only allowed to come in there once a year. And they had to do all these rituals to be pure in order to come into this place where God's presence sat on the mercy seat. Okay? Then they would take the sacrifice and they would, they would sprinkle the blood 
on there because that sacrifice was to cover the sins of the whole nation. Okay? So as an Israelite, I needed to bring sacrifice for my own sin, but then the priest would bring a sacrifice in to cover the sins of the whole nation. All right? And this was how, God dwelt, got, how God's presence was able to dwell at the same time with the entire nation for their sins. The same time, there was a priest with his hand on a goat. Okay? We'll see if this sounds familiar to anybody. The name of the goat was called the scapegoat. Okay? Now, when we think of a scapegoat, what do we think of that? The person that we put all the what on? Blame. There you go. And so the priest would confess all the sins of the nation on this goat, and the goat would flee out into the wilderness, never to return again. And God would remove the, cover the sin and remove it for that year. It was gone. Okay? So as we look at that and we think about that picture of atonement, I, I really think it's, it's such a beautiful thing of how God is so gracious. I mean, he's like thought of everything. Like I'm going to give them ways that they can live that are healthier, that they're righteous, that are holy, that identify with me, that I'm a God that dwells with them, that they're a whole kingdom of my priests. It's not like there's this one magical person that's the witch doctor. They're all my priests. I'm able to communicate with them all. But let's see, how do I do this? I have to cover their sin because I'm holy. I can't be with it. So I'm going to cover their sin with sacrifice. And because it's an entire nation, I'm also going to cover the sins of the entire nation every year to make sure it's covered. Okay? God is, it's almost like a parallel of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 1. It's the start of living life with God. And God is continually, continually working uh, with the children of Israel. So when it gets to the part about grace, what I hope you're seeing that the grace that God is giving in sacrifices is that he doesn't have to do this. There is no reason for God to do this other than he chooses to. All right? And so he is giving them a way to continue to have him be with them, to be his people, to not be slaves and under the rule of other human beings and false gods that desire things like, oh, I don't know, a pharaoh who thought he was God, who had babies, genocide. That's where they were, and he is taking them to what is right and what makes them distinct. And it's a very gracious, gracious thing that God does. I'd like you to look back at the example of atonement that Jesus or that God explained to them in Exodus 21. Exodus 21, and we're going to read verse 28 through 30. And of course, it says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox must be stoned, and it may not be eaten. But the ox's owner is innocent. However, if the ox was in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, 
yet does not restrain it, and it kills a man or woman, the ox must be stoned, and its owner must be put to death. If instead the ransom is demanded of him, he can pay a redemption price for his life in the full amount demanded from him. Okay? So as we look at this law that has been given, remember this is a new society. They are a full nation now. And God's given them laws on just how to live everyday life. And it's an agricultural community. So this is what happens if you've got a bull that, you know, gores someone and they die. And also what happens if you continually are warned from people, they don't even do what they could do, and say you've got to kill the bull. They're like, dude, put a fence around it, okay? Because this is really wrong. And the person's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And it takes a person's life again. Then not only is the bull to be put to death or the ox, but so is the owner. Okay? So once again, God is saying that life is important. Once again, God is showing his, the value of God in this law is that extended grace, because the coolest part of this is that if the person that has been offended, like let's say it's, uh, oh, I don't know, let's take a beautiful couple. I don't know if you guys have ever seen a, an older couple that are just so sweet. Like they're so respectful of each other, and they just genuinely seemed at peace in life, and they're happy to be together and, and one day they're out walking, and this guy has this bull that has been goring people, but he refuses to get it under control. And this bull, this ox gets loose, and it gores the wife to death. By law, that bull or ox is killed, and so is the owner. But the husband could say, if you pay a ransom... And we think of ransom the opposite way. We think of it like a kidnapping, but this is like in a positive way. If you pay a ransom of the penalty of what the fixed amount that is this person's life is worth, then if you pay that, I will accept that as the same thing as your life being taken. So that person, character of God, has the ability to extend grace to someone else for a payment for wrongdoing. All right? So as we think about that, let's think about God's grace and how he used Leviticus and the sacrifices and the laws. And the high priest had to bring the, the sacrifice in. The sacrifice covered the sins. The sacrifice cost something. Let's take all those things. Now let's put us today in 2021 as the individuals who it's our ox, our bull that is goring people. Let's say it's our sin that is offensive. And the requirement, the penalty for sin is death. God is this husband who has been offended who has experienced death. And so he says, if you take this ransom, it will make you right in the eyes of the law. It will atone for your sin. It will atone for your wrong actions. But it's like God is this husband 
who not only says what the fine is, he also gives the person the payment to make the payment to him. So Jesus Christ, all right, knew no sin. He is God's son. He came and lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all the law. What the Torah demands, Jesus fulfilled as a human every single part of it. Being also God, he is perfect without sin, and so he fulfilled it all, and he then went to explaining to people who he was and why he was there and what God demanded of them and died on the cross for our sins. Jesus was the ransom for the world. Okay? So when we think of this picture of atonement and what it meant to um, the children of Israel in Exodus and Leviticus, and we think about the day of atonement that they had in which God could dwell with them in the scapegoat, the sin was gone, the sin was covered for the entire nation. The problem is all of those laws all of those rituals, all of those sacrifices became what was important to them to fulfill those for the purpose of doing that. And they stopped listening to God. And they stopped wanting to interact with God. And some would go back to false gods. And before long, they had distanced themselves from God. And God knew that this couldn't continue forever, so he found a way to once and for all Deal with the zit on every person's forehead, that imperfection that keeps God from being able to dwell in their presence. And that's why he sent Jesus to be the ransom so that we all could be in his presence with him living inside of us. I, had, I almost came up here and just closed this and wanted to testify to the beauty of what Eric read. As my favorite passage in the entire world is John 17. The fact that Jesus Christ paid a ransom for me, but before he did that, asked that God would look at me and see me as he sees his son and that we would be together and that, that we all would be one and that Jesus is saying, before I go through with this, God, please don't let it be for nothing. I am willing to be the sacrifice. I am willing to pay the price, but I want to do it so that they can be with us together to dwell where I am forever and ever and ever. And that meant Luke Holderby. My imperfection, my sin completely paid for that God would want me to be his child and so as we see the beauty of Exodus and Leviticus, we think of, when we think of the Day of Atonement, we think of John 1.29. John the Baptist, as he's baptizing people, he sees Jesus coming towards him, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away, but I want you to catch this, he takes away the sin of the Israelites, who takes away 
away the sin of the world. Every human being now has the possibility to have their sin removed. It's now not just the, the children of Israel who God is, in the Torah, is, is sharing his story and giving his laws and rights and ways to be with him. Now, fast forward, God is offering a way for the entire world if they will choose to do this to be redeemed and their sin to be forgiven and taken away. And John the Baptist knew when he saw Jesus, God let him know that that is the sacrificial lamb. That is the scapegoat that will take away the sin of the world. This was a Hebrew audience that John was speaking to. They would understand what a scapegoat is. They would understand what it means to have the scapegoat to, to lead to be taken away. Romans 3.25, when we talk about Jesus being that sacrifice, that atonement, said Paul writes, God presented him at the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one whose faith is in Jesus. That sacrificial lamb that used to cover the sin, God now says that I will sacrifice my son who is a perfect sacrifice, who fulfilled the law and is blameless, and I will take his blood as a payment for all sin. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, they have been justified. They have been atoned. Everything in the legal standing is right because Jesus paid the price. Hebrews 3.12, Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he may sanctify the people by his own blood. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, God's saying, not only am I going to atone and make the sin right, it's more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's just a more of, uh, you're not going to have to spend eternity separated from me. It's more than like, okay, I guess I'll be right, so at least I know I'm there. It's a high priest who was tempted. Jesus was tempted in every single way that we are, and he didn't sin. So why is that important? Because instead of having to go into the Holy of Holies to have this uh, ritual happen for God to cover sins, we can come right to God himself and say, Abba, Father, we can talk to him because he cares for us, because Christ understood what it meant 
to be a human being. He understood what it was like to suffer. So he understands as we're sharing. He's like, yeah, I get it. But we can come boldly before him. And that not only do we get the opportunity to be that bold, that God Almighty, who the people initially were so scared, they didn't even want to hear him talk to them because it was so terrifying. That same God we have access to come to because Jesus has paid the price and we can receive mercy. And I love the next part because it is Leviticus and find grace to help us in our time of need. So not only am I going to pay the penalty, but I'm going to continue to be in your presence and you will be my people and I will give you the grace that you need to live life. Matthew 26, 26. Jesus uh, refers to the communion, how we would talk about it today. Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and take eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. If you read Hebrews chapter 9, it will talk about the covenant and it'll talk about how Moses literally said these words. He took the blood of the calves and the goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, sprinkled both of the book itself and all the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Why am I reading all these different passages in the New Testament for you? Because they all derive out of Leviticus. They all derive out of Exodus. They all derive out of the Torah. They all derive out of a God who desperately wants to dwell in the presence of people, his creation, who he redeemed and cared for. But the reason I'm giving you all of those examples that are parallels is because God is very intentional about what he does. That means for you and I today, God purposely has put you here today to hear the message about the good news of Jesus Christ who paid a ransom for your sin that made you unable to be in his presence. To put you here today to say, I understand that you're my child, but I understand that you have turned to the world and other things to look for guidance. But as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And son, daughter, you can talk to me anytime you want. I am here for you and I will give you grace when you need it. I hope today, as you think about Exodus and Leviticus, you understand that what God did was not only did he give the children of Israel grace by giving them the law and sacrifices, but he gives the atonement of Jesus Christ to you and to me, to I today, whatever. <laughs> the English is there. I'm, I, I always get in trouble for that one. But um, God gives us his grace with the atonement so that he can continually dwell with us. It's not a covering. 
It's a complete removal once we have trusted him. So what will we do with that? What will you and I as believers do with this opportunity that God has given us? 1 Peter 1, 3, or 1 Peter 1 and verse 13 says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, and this is out of Leviticus, be ye holy, because I am holy. And that word holy simply means set apart, dedicated to. And just like the children of Israel were to be set apart and different from their counterparts, you and I, with the Holy Spirit living inside of us, with Jesus Christ as our high priest and our Messiah, our King, we are to be set aside, set apart, different than our counterparts who don't know him. That we too can reflect the goodness of Jesus Christ. That we can show the value of the heart of God. That when your neighbor, your coworker, your child, your spouse pulls down the window and looks into your heart, the value of what you do and what you say looks like Jesus. And it doesn't look like you. But we're human. And we're not able to do that on our own. It requires us to, requires us to humbly go before God and continually be in his word. Be in community with other believers encouraging one another and letting him direct our lives and sacrificing things that cost us our lives for him so people realize the truth of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this time together. I thank you for the book of Leviticus. I thank you for what a great example of grace that you gave away for your people to be present with you. And as I think of today, Lord, as we live, you give us a way to be present with you. And I thank you that you are present with us here today, that you have made a way through Jesus I pray if there's anyone here, God, that doesn't know you, that they would understand that all they have to do is accept that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that, you, that he died on the cross for the sin and that you raised him from the dead and ask him into their lives. Transfer their trust of living their lives for what Jesus has done for them so that they can become your child. For my brother and sister in Christ that are here today that are struggling, that are having difficulties in their life, May they cry out to you. May they come boldly before the throne, knowing that they will find in your mercy grace to give them what they need. To the one that has walked away, that has looked to the world to define their culture or other things, that, Lord, that they would forsake that and turn back to you and cling tight to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name, amen.